Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Devin Lowe. Of all the people I've had on my podcast, Devin's career probably most closely parallels my own. We both started off by competing on the Magic Pro Tour. We both made well-known deck-building games, and we both worked on large trading card games for other companies. In his case, he ended up becoming the head developer for Magic the Gathering at Wizards of the Coast, also the creative director at PopCap for Plants vs. Zombies Heroes, and he's had countless other credits to his name. Devin has an amazing insight into the design process and has some very strong opinions about how design and storytelling should work, and we dig into a lot of that in today's talk. We talk about not only the storytelling in games and how it differs from traditional storytelling, but also the differences in design and inspiration between Ascension and his game Marvel Legendary, the process of creating huge trading card games like Magic the Gathering, what it's like to work at big companies versus small solo projects, and the difference between digital and physical game design. There's a lot of insights here, and you'll see narrative threads that echo as he and I debate back and forth some of the finer points. So we really do get into the weeds here. So for those of you that really love that kind of stuff, you're going to have a lot to digest here. So I'll let you get into it. And without further ado, here is Devin Lowe. And welcome. All right. I am here with Devin Lowe. Devin, it's exciting to finally get to talk to you uh, with a deep dive in design conversations. Likewise. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we met up uh, at uh, at PaulCon, uh, which uh, was a really great gathering of uh, some amazing people and amazing designers. And uh, I, uh, you know, you and I have been in the same circles for a very long time and we've met a couple times. We've never really been able to have a, an extended conversation until then, I think. So this was a very fortuitous and fun event. Yeah, I've been really enjoying listening to the podcast. I've heard all the episodes so far, and uh, it's it's a great way to get different people's thoughts and uh, different perspectives. Yeah, so uh, so I always, as you've been listening to the podcast, you always know I you know try to get started with uh, you know, how did you get into the gaming industry? You've been you've been you know in these circles and building games I love for a long time now. What what kind of got brought you here in the first place? Yeah, so growing up, my dad is a big historical miniatures wargamer. And so he's uh, painting lead figures of Carthaginians and uh, Swiss mercenaries and a bunch of Incas and Aztecs in, in different historical periods and areas. And he would take uh, myself and my brother to these gaming conventions, and people would have these elaborate terrain setups, and they've built you know, the Alamo, and you're going to fight that battle, and they've built uh, the Punic Wars, and they've built um, you know, sci-fi setups and just, just crazy, uh, crazy terrain types and you're playing mostly miniature war games on them and so gaming was a part of my life from a pretty young age uh that way my mom was also a teacher and she's taught in a uh area of the school that had a lot of puzzles had some board games had ways to uh think in new directions with those tools i guess i would say and so those two influences kind of definitely had an effect on me growing up so were you like designing games as a kid and playing with games or you were just playing with your parents honestly yes uh We'd go to like Point Con and Convention of West Point, go to StoreCon in Pennsylvania, and I'd, I'd play all these games, and I wouldn't have money to buy them, and so I'd go home and make my own versions, and I'd take index cards and cut them up and take a pencil, and uh, like I'd, I'd play Nuclear War, the card game at a convention, and I'd go home and I wouldn't have it, and I'd like make my own Nuclear War, 
And while I was in there, I'd be like, you know, it'd be cool if this game had like tanks and infantry as well as nuclear bombs. Let's make that. Uh, and I still have a bunch of those old sort of index card games. Um, and some of them were like, oh, I played a game with wizards and spells and towers, and they're fighting each other, and let's make my own game, but I'll base it on D&D, and I'll adapt the D&D spells to this card game format. And now we're casting lightning bolts and fireballs, and we're summoning orcs to fight each other. Uh, and at the time, I did not think that that would lead to anything. But looking back, it's like pretty crazy uh, what a signpost that seems like. Yeah, well, it's 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 easy to to tell the story of your life in retrospect. Uh, I found <laughs> that's <laughs> it's a good point. The, it's the telling it in the moment and trying to project ahead that's always difficult. But you can create that sort of narrative thread, and it's funny. I talk to people all the time. So, you know, when you're sort of lost in where you want to go with your life, it's really looking back and just picking up a few threads like what are the things you you chose to do when you nobody was telling you to do anything what are the things that like you know got you excited on a day-to-day basis uh and then suddenly it's like to help you find that path uh as crazy as it might be yeah i think it'd be a good point that retrospectively it's easier to kind of fit a narrative thread to the whole thing and i probably could find anecdotes in my past that uh if i ended up in some other career i could look at as signposts to what i would eventually have done like uh i remember as a kid uh being asked what do you want to do when you grow up and i like like math i like numbers i like the sort of toy uh cash register i had and so i said i want to be a cashier like, that's what i want uh-huh. to do and like that's a fine thing to do many people are that and that's great uh but if i had ended up doing that i'd be like yeah of course like as a kid that's what i want to do and here i am yeah no well i mean i loved i loved the ocean and uh you know was pretty good at science so i wanted to be a marine biologist for the longest time awesome. uh and uh it's uh you know actually it gets a little bit away from the you know sort of pure designer uh chat but i really do believe that like the ability to tell a good story for your life right. is uh is the critical skill of you know feeling fulfilled and connected to what's going on and it's you know recognizing that it's a story no matter where you are what you're doing you're creating you're crafting this narrative but if you feel like you've got that epic scope and maybe i can tie this back to to design because uh-huh. that's what we try to do with game design too right. you know you want to make sure that your players get to tell this narrative that is like okay look at me i started here and i went down this path and i made this choice and that led to this thing and then whether it's an epic right. win or an epic fail that story is the thing that you remember at the end that's what makes it that's what makes it cohesive Totally. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Hamilton musical, and one of the themes is who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And uh, there's different ways you can tell a story about somebody's life, like you're saying. Uh, and as you interact with other people, you often have a narrative in your head about the way that they, uh, you perceive their life as being. And if you think someone's a jerk, then everything they do, you're like, that's because they're a jerk. If you think someone's a cool person, everything they do, you're like, oh, that's because they're a cool person, right? And you will find ways to take the exact same behaviors and attribute different motivations to them. At work, at my day job, we talk about different player types, and one of them is immersed story writers. And uh, this isn't people that want to literally write a story on paper or on a computer, and it's not people who want to uh, live the story of Lord of the Rings by playing video games, who want to write their own stories by the actions they take. And when you're uh, making board games or digital games and you uh, see people telling stories to friend about the experience you had in your game. You're like, oh, that's this is good. I've I've gotten there, you know, because you want people to have a moment so excited that they can't wait but to share it with their buddies. Um, and it's been fun to see that in some of the games that I've gotten the opportunity to work on. Yeah, well, so I wasn't I wasn't looking to leave this thread at all. I mean, I actually, oh sure, sure. Yeah, I want to tell because that, how you tell stories in these games is, I think, a really great. You know, let's get let's get concrete with it because you know when you're working on games that are. Uh, you know, I was going to reference magic specifically where it's this wide open thing. And there is, in fact, these days, especially, I think 
they're doing a far better job than they ever have of telling a sort of more traditional narrative that you can relate to. But the the heart of that kind of game is that you can create your own narrative and there's this huge variety of different possibilities. How did you guys think about that then? Or how do you think about that now? Like, what is it? What are the design choices that you can make where you can create or ruin those kinds of experiences? Uh, giving people the... You know, people have bad beat stories all the time in, in poker, Magic the Gathering, and in other games where they say, you never believe this happened, this thing that happened to me. And the reason those kind of stories are compelling to tell and to live are that there is something that can happen that's very unlikely, and then sometimes it happens in a surprising way. And part of how that can play out in game design is uh, people who are behind and have an opportunity to come from, uh, come back from behind and uh, win anyway. That's huge in sports, which are uh, often great examples of game design. It's huge in... Uh, card games and video games, the ability to be behind in uh, League of Legends or something and somehow find a way to come back and win is often a story you just can't wait to tell somebody because uh, it's a kind of story that humans really react to. So is it all about the sort of low probability, high high swing uh, moments? Because those obviously are a huge, huge part of what the stories we reference. That, that, that's certainly part of it. If I had to sort of think of other examples off the top of my head of the kind of thing that makes you uh, tell a story... Um, when you work together with a partner to achieve something you couldn't uh, achieve by yourself, that's often the thing you want to tell other people about. Uh, if you beat somebody that you perceive as better than you, not just through come from behind moments, but maybe just out, out thought them somehow, uh, that's the thing you often can't wait to tell people like, hey, you know this guy who's really good at uh, this game? I beat him. Let me tell you all about it. Let me post a screenshot or uh, let me show you this, this, this milestone I've achieved. Right. So, so we're sort of hitting on the key, key narrative points of sort of you know the underdog uh key narrative points of cooperation of uh the sort of you know overcoming adversity uh being able to find and you know sort of this learning thread of okay i figured something out that i didn't see before now i've now everything looks different to me right so uh, you know when you're like oh i used these cards that i thought were terrible and now i would look what i was able to do with them and now there's this whole other frame i mean i'll uh i'll We'll jump around a little bit, but, you know, uh, we both have a lot of experience with deck building games. And even though I had a ton of experience with trading card games and I knew a ton of stuff, it wasn't I did not figure out the uh, the chapel and trashing cards thing the first time I played Dominion. Right. R right. It was like and then somebody showed that to me and I was like, oh, my God, if I remove cards from my deck, everything gets the whole game is changed. And then, of course, that was the most powerful thing you could do for the longest right. time. Right, uh, right, right. And so that for me was a huge moment and a huge story that I'm telling even now a decade later um because it was like I just this aha moment of learning uh is a critical part of of game storytelling right i think it's a good example of uh way tell stories by yourself is a breakthrough moment where you suddenly realize that this interaction there you didn't realize before uh tcgs and deck building games have a ton of interactions that are unexpected uh there's so many different moving pieces in them that uh work in different ways and are intentionally breaking the rules, right? Those card games are trying to break the rules all the time. And so when you put those pieces together, you can some suddenly see a interaction you didn't see before that makes you feel like a genius. And you can't wait to tell your friend about that too. So that's a great way to um, have those sort of uh, storytelling beats as well. So it's interesting because when we started talking about this, you know, it was like, all right, well, is the primacy of story, you know, the bad beat or the, you know, epic, epic victory story. And now I think we've hit on what I, I think may be a more primal thread of, I don't know if it's fair to call it story, but the, that, that learning and discovery moment, I think is the heart of like what game makes games interesting to us. Right. Um, because when that runs out, 
you don't want to play the game anymore, right? Like tic-tac-toe, you can figure out that like, you know, playing in a corner is a good strategy versus playing in the middle. And then one, at some point you're like, oh, okay, wait, I can't, nobody can win anymore. There's nothing else to discover here. I'm over this. Um, right. And, and magic metagames get solved at some point or stabilized at least where everyone uh, is playing the same six decks or what have you. And sometimes that's because they are the best six decks. And sometimes that's just because you've reached a local maximum of, uh, where these decks happen to settle such that a new deck can find so hard to get in or people just have enough momentum that they don't want to find something new. And if the game never had any more sets, then they might get boring, like you say, and eventually die down. And it's a blessing that TCGs and deck building games get to make more sets and liven things up and change all the rules again and make people get back to that learning mode that's so fun. And it's obviously great for their uh, ability to support game designers you know, making more games and that uh, those business models are both places where players are overjoyed to get new content. They're excited to buy something new. They're excited to shake things up. Um, and it feels very like player friendly to release new stuff. Uh, so we're talking about me growing up playing games and then I was playing magic sort of casually in high school. And then I got to Harvard and I found some people there. They were playing like very, very seriously. And uh, Cambridge was the place where your move games was, where you yourself uh, were a, a rising star and a, a magic champion that was, you know, keeping a lot of renown. Um, and I started playing magic more seriously with people at Harvard and also at your move games and uh, trying to get on the pro tour. And they were, trying to be serious about how the game worked, figuring out the physics of the game, uh, figuring out how to win. And that was very exciting to me. I love competing. And starting to play PTQs uh, was was a blast. And I guess I won three PTQs and played three Pro Tours in the year 2000. Um, and then I got my uh, master's degree in computer science from Harvard. And then I was kind of figuring out what to do next. And game design had never seemed like a viable career path. It didn't even cross my mind. Uh, and it's funny that one of the games I played when I was a kid, I found it again recently, it's called File 13, and it was included in Dragon Magazine as sort of like a, a giveaway game once upon a time. And it's a game about making games and about how games move through the production pipeline. And the joke is that at any stage in the uh, design and production pipeline, the game can be trash. You go to File 13, which is the garbage. And so in early concepting, in uh, in mechanical design, in graphical layout, in... Uh, publisher review at all these different stages, the game can just get ruined. And you're trying to like push a ton of games through this pipeline and hope that some come out. Um, and it's it's kind of a funny commentary that is all too true about the ways games can get canceled. But the thing that stuck out to me as a kid was that uh, in the playtesting phase, they had a throwaway joke that playtesters get paid by being listed to credits, but that you know you can't eat the credits, and so most playtesters just like die in a cardboard box, like starving to death. And in my head, I was like, oh, like, that sounds awful. I don't want to do that. Like, I can't, you know, if I try to make games, I'll just, like, die in a cardboard box. I'll never have a family. I can't send them to college. And later in life, when I eventually got to game companies, I was shocked to find that people had families. Like, they had kids. They sent their kids to college. Like, that it was viable. Um, and that that wasn't on my radar at all in that era. And so uh, by total happenstance, um, after my master's was over and I was looking around, my mom told me that my cousin was the nanny for Richard Garfield, who famously invented Magic the Gathering. And she was like, yeah, you should like go and meet him sometime. And I was like, oh, mom, like I can't I can't be that guy. I can't just go meet him and be like a fanboy. Like people often are kind of embarrassed to attract celebrities. And my mom's like, no, like seriously, you have to meet him. Like you love this game. I was like, okay, fine. Uh, and so I met Richard. He's like super, super cool. 
Um, I like, really wanted to impress him, and he's like, oh, you should come out and play board games with my friends sometime. And I was like, oh my god, this is my dream come true. Like, don't freak out, don't freak out. Uh, and so I was living in Seattle for the summer, and I started going around and playing board games with his friends. And again, I'm like desperate to impress him. Um, and uh, it was fun. We had a good time. And uh, eventually, I sort of like got my courage up to uh, sort of send him a, a package of here's why I think I can deliver a lot of value, like helping you guys make magic sense. Like, here, here's what I can do for you, and here are some examples of, of what I think I could uh, do to help your company uh, achieve its goals. And he passed on to Bill Rose, and then by total chance again, uh, they had an internship. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Let me pause. Let me pause you for one second, because that's yeah. So you get your <laughs> uh, your cousin is Richard Garfield's nanny, and you get this in, and then that is uh, super intimidating to be able to make this you know initial conversation and be yeah, able to approach yeah. someone who's a hero. This is something I, I you know I hear all of the time, and 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 you know exactly the same sort of thing that you said not only is richard great but almost everybody in this industry is very welcoming very approachable right. and that right. everybody that's out there it's like i can't do that i couldn't step up and kind of talk try to talk to my heroes and talk to the companies that matter to me uh you you know step up and do that um that's a huge you know a huge thing and it, and it almost always works out well and if it doesn't work out well and for some reason whoever you approach is a jerk don't let that stop you. Go to the next person because you know right. you're never going to be able to get that next step. You're never going to be able to make something happen if you're not willing to, you know, put yourself out there. And and it and it's if you approach in a kind way and a you know and are nice, people are going to be nice to you. Um, so I just want to sort of underscore that message because I think that's really important. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I've heard that uh, in your other podcast episodes of people having those opportunities and jumping on them and having it work out. Um, uh, you know. Paul Peterson is meant for the day. He like literally had a similar opportunity with Richard Garfield. So Richard Garfield's a, a, a patron state in many ways. Yeah. Well, I, I am, I am, I'm hearing a few stories about Richard Garfield specifically bringing people into the game design. And I'm afraid that I'm going to send a bunch of people to Richard's house right now. Um, yeah. But, I, I don't mean to, you know, get him, get him stocked, but no, uh, no, no. But, but I did, I, I also wanted to follow up on, uh, you said, and then you like presented him with like, like a, like a resume or like a, like a document of like, here's why you should hire me. Like how, what, what, what went down there? So I, I was, I was thinking like, oh, someday I should try to like maybe finagle a job out of this, but I was still a little scared. And then uh, I was avidly reading the MagicGathering.com articles about magic. Uh, eventually, I would end up writing them, but at the time I was reading them, and uh, there was a Bueller article. Randy Bueller was writing the latest developments column at the time, the one I would later inherit, and he uh, posted their vapor ops test, which is how they evaluated new candidates who wanted to work on magic. And just kind of as a fun article, it said, here's the test, you know, post your results in the comments or something. And this was like uh, terrifying to me because I thought, oh, no, I've been trying to get ready to like uh, pitch from why you should hire me. And this test is going to make like 100,000 people take the test and send their results there and say, hire me. And I had like maybe not much competition before this test came up. And now I have like infinite competition and I've missed my shot. and It's all over. And I've been an idiot. and I've ruined everything. It was not a great feeling. Uh, but I channeled that into saying, okay, well, uh, I certainly can't wait a week longer than this to make my move. And so I took the test and did as good a job as I could and included that in the sort of packet I sent of how I thought I could add value. And I made some other arguments as well for how I thought I could help them. Uh, and as lucky as it was to have met Richard through that random connection, it was also very lucky that they had a slot that had just opened up. Well, I guess I, guess I didn't hear anything back for three, four, six months, and then they had a slot open up, and then they reached back out to me. Uh, and I ended up getting a six-month internship out of that, and uh, eventually they hired me full-time. Then I was at Wizards more than five years, 
and eventually was the lead final designer of Lorwyn and Shards of Alara and Flater Chaos on the development side. And eventually became the head of Elver Magic and, and just had a great experience there. Worked a lot of magic tests, a lot of other TCGs. Uh, and it was it was a dream come true. It was I'm still very, very grateful. That's awesome. And then uh since uh we are are there what what you you found your dream job, you got in, you became the head of magic. What what would make you leave such a dream job? Uh so Wizards did a bunch of uh digital games and spent a lot of money on them that at the time didn't really work out. Uh they had a bunch of layoffs across the company. I was wrapped up in that, and so I got laid off that way. Mm-hmm. And I uh it seemed like a horrible, horrible event at the time. It was very disheartening. I'd never been laid off before. It was my first job essentially. Uh eventually it did work out for the best, as people often say, but it sure didn't seem that way at the time. Uh yeah. but my next job was uh, helping make the Marvel Superhero Squad MMO for kids uh, through Gazillion. And they hired me in there to make the video game, but I pitched them on making a trading card game in the in the MMO, a, a digital trading card game, which is something that they were already very open to. And I made my prototype, and I pitched it through. There's some of the submissions, but mine uh, was the one that was taken. And so I became sort of a product owner of a, of a team of uh, six to eight people sort of making the digital card game inside that video game and so it's a way for me to sort of like parlay my trading card game knowledge into making video games uh and that was a theme that recurred because i guess uh upper deck published a paper version of the superhero squad marvel trading card game and i made some connections that way and they put a bunch of target stores and had codes to unlock things in the mmo uh and then once the mmo shipped six of us split off and did a startup uh we eventually ran out of money before we finished the video game we were trying to make and then upper deck reached out to me and said hey we have the marvel license for making card games we kind of want to make a deck building game they're you know it's a category that's heating up who do you know that we good at this and i like cracked my knuckles i'm like let me tell you who i think would be good at this and i like <laughs> pitched them on why i think you know they, they, they should hire me and i guess with that and the garfield thing like um it's, it's very lucky in both cases that uh some of those opportunities opened up but i also tried to like really take it seriously and crush these opportunities when they came up. Like if I was not going to get many shots like this, I didn't want to squander them. And I wanted to uh, take every angle I could in terms of working hard, thinking about what they would like to see and thinking about what I could bring to the table to sort of get them to agree to, 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 to pick me. Sure. Yeah. The chance favors the prepared, right? You're, you're, we all have these sort of various opportunities that come up in our lives and the people that are willing to put in the work and really be ready for that and do what it takes are the ones that get to, you know, get to the next level and open up new opportunities. Right. And like, um, going to wizards, uh, the opportunity, like meeting Richard was, was chance, but after some reluctance, I did jump on talking to him and like trying to, uh, learn about his world and then the work I'd done, like getting on the Pro Tour, helped me to get the job. The work I'd done learning about mathematics and computer science, and probability, and game theory, decision theory, helped me to get that job. And so it wasn't just sort of luck, although that's certainly a lot of it. And, you know, I have sort of a lot of privilege and uh, unearned advantages going into it. But, um, you know, the, the deck building game opportunity for Upper Deck was also leveraging... Uh, them being happy with the trading card game I'd made that they they poured into paper a couple years earlier. Right. So there was a lot of stuff in your uh, in, that, in this part of your story I really want to dig into. Um, and uh, principles I'm sure we could talk about for hours. But um, the the jump from you know head of design at Magic where you're you know you're working on paper Magic and it's you know almost a very sort of 
pure design role to being running a digital team um building a digital trading card game what was that what was that transition like were you you know were you, what was you, were you managing the programmers there were you just managing design what was happening uh i wasn't a people manager and i guess like i, I was the head developer magic like where rosewater was the head designer just oh. to sort of like make right. sure i don't get uh angry letters um i started uh without running a uh a feature team i was just a designer on and the sorry, overall before you're right yeah I, I appreciate you highlighting the difference for, for people that don't know the difference between a head developer and a head designer what how would you describe that difference uh i guess back in the day magic sets were split into an initial design phase where designers tried to be uh very exploratory ambitious aggressive about doing new things uh that the game had never done before and then they would make as sort of cool a flight of fancies they could and then pass it off to a development team that would take it and make sure it played really well they'd play the hell of it how the mechanics weren't working well uh sand off the ones that were kind of working well and polish the ones that were working well and then just make sure that it played well in limited and constructed, that it was uh, curved well, that it would be good for casual and enfranchised players, and that it would sort of like stand the test of time to be played like the millions of times Magic City is played. And uh, you said that that's how it used to work. Does that, that change now? And do you think that, that there's, a, there's a value to that system as it was set up? I, 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 I'm no longer uh, an expert in how they do things. It's, it's been a long time since I was there. I was there from 03 to 08. But I believe that there... Um, there is now an initial sort of vision team and then a set design team and then a play design team that sort of um uh break it up into three parts instead of two god i i I don't want to like try to make too many claims about how it works because i'm not no no, it's all it's all good i i I mostly just wanted to clarify and then you know even I, i sort of I break down, you know, design principles marginally differently, but definitely the sort of there's engine design versus component design. There's development design versus development and the focus shifts a lot. And so you were you were primarily focused on the sort of development side, which is sort of making that making sure everything is balanced and plays well and that the you know, what's happening is actually being shown through, not necessarily setting the vision per se, but making sure that that vision actually gets realized. Yeah. And, and they, they had a bunch of people there that were. um you know, pro tour winners uh, like you yourself are, which is awesome. And uh, we're just like experts at crushing magic tournaments and uh, knowing the details of balancing cards. And I wasn't quite at that level. I'd been on some pro tours, had certainly had won any, didn't didn't perform great in any of the ones that I played in. Um, and so I sort of switched back and forth between the initial design teams and the uh, development teams, or eventually they call them final design teams to sort of clarify that it was still game design that was happening there, that they weren't like computer game developers. Uh, and so I. I, I was probably on 10 initial design teams for Magic and then 10 uh, development slash final design teams. And I enjoyed both sides of it. And there were some people that kind of multi-class and switched back and forth. And some people that were great at finding innovative new things to do, but weren't necessarily great at like making things play really well for uh, different, different groups over time, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, for, certainly. I mean, you know, I went from being a, a sort of pro tour player to working on games. And that meant that I was, you know, I could find where the things were, were broken and degenerate, but I didn't right. know how to design like that, that you don't know that skill just because you're good at playing games. Uh, right. it, and so actually that's where I had to start, you know, studying and learning and trying to figure everything out that uh, it was hilarious to me that I already had that job when, you know, I had no idea how to do uh-huh. it. uh but it was uh that's sort of what led ended up led to the book and this podcast is like hey you know these these are really valuable principles and i wish somebody would just like put them in a way that i could have understood back then without having to go go through it figure (laughs) it out the hard way and launch so many bad games (laughs) it's funny and like uh and 
I, I agree with you that they are different skill sets, and it's hard to uh, self-teach them. And it's awesome this podcast and your book are sort of helping people out there that are interested in this topic uh, teach themselves and, and learn from you and, and your colleagues and, and sort of get get to the higher level. Uh, getting into a corporation making board games or video games is very hard. But once you get there, it's a great way to learn because you have so many colleagues that have done it longer than you, uh, that have different perspectives, that have different talents, and you can learn from them. And I learned a ton about making games in general at Wizards and at all the video game companies since then. And um, compared to what I could have learned uh, just working solo on game design or if I worked at a consulting company during the day on, on related topics and tried to do games at night and didn't have that sort of... Um, uh, trial by fire, trial by who knows what, of uh, having a million people tell you this is what you're doing that's good and this is what you're doing that's not good and you should do better. Um, that was a, a huge, huge benefit sort of throughout my career. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, as much as I'm trying to be helpful with both the book and the podcast, there's only so much that that can do. The Surrounding yourself with smart people that are trying to solve the same problems as you or have already solved the same problems as you, mentorship, deadlines, those things like real accountability, those things are invaluable and incredibly important and can accelerate your process of learning from you know years to months uh in in a way that i don't know anything else that can uh right so, and uh yeah. and as some of your guests have also said um if you're not in the position to sort of be in an organization that's making games where people can kind of all be teaching each other make each other better then finding your own communities building your own communities where people can uh teach each other is hugely helpful uh and people have talked about different playtest groups that they're in i live in seattle so this place is just like Lousy game designers is just crawling with them. You know, if you if you throw a cat, you will hit three game designers in Seattle. <laughs> uh, but I get to go to uh, Paul Peterson's board game sort of design and playtesting group, and that's uh, very helpful and a great resource. A lot of folks here have their own uh, groups in which they play their games and get feedback about them, and they learn a lot that way. And I definitely encourage anyone out there to um, look for similarly minded folks. You know, organize through the internet and, and get those groups together. Find your tribe. Find people that yeah. that will pull you up and that will challenge you. That those are the best best basic tips for growing and being happy in life. Right. Uh, so after and so I I made what became uh, legendary the Marvel deck builder game for Upper Deck. Um, I've continued to make expansions of that since then. I think it came out in like uh, 2012 or something, and. Uh, I think there's 20 sets of it on the shelves that I've 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 done all the all the design for. There's a bunch of spin-off brands that I did not do the content for, but are using uh, the same engine or a related engine uh, for Alien and Predator and Buffy and the X Files and James Bond is coming out and Big Trouble in China. So there's like a, a bunch of boxes of it, which was very very gratifying to see. Um, and then I got a job at uh, PopCap, which is part of Electronic Arts in Seattle. Uh, as a creative director, and I initially worked on sort of Facebook games there when that was a thing. It was like a very, very brief flash in the pan where Facebook games were very, very hot and they were very, very not once mobile games uh, on phones started to become a big thing. Um, and then I uh, started pitching PopCap on making a digital trading card game because if you leave me in the room too long without it, you know, enough stuff to do, I will, I will make a digital trading card game for you. <laughs> uh, and so Plants vs. Zombies is one of the biggest brands of PopCap, and it's a great fit to trading card games in a lot of ways. Uh, because there's certain properties in IP that make them a good fit to trading card games versus not. And I started sort of making a paper prototype. Why don't, why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that? What, what, makes a, what makes a property good fit for trading card game versus bad fit for a trading card game design? 
I, I have a list that I could bring up, but off the top of my head, one important thing is that you need to have a lot of characters in that, um, like, Conan is an IP that people have heard of, but the characters you name from the Conan IP are, like, Conan, maybe Red Sonja, and maybe there's, like, a couple of bad guys, and, like, that's it. Um, whereas something like Transformers has, like, hundreds of characters in it, uh, and that makes it a better fit. Another thing is that um, you want to have characters in the IP that are very different power levels from each other, so you can make cards in the TCG that are very different power levels from each other. And so if you are... Um, uh, if the IP you want to use is uh, medieval French infantry warfare, then the different medieval French infantrymen probably aren't that different from each other in power level. Like, there's no dragon, there's no tank, there's no spaceship, there's no uh, Thanos that stands head and shoulders over the other ones that can be sort of like a powerful piece in the game that would dominate the others in a cool way. Uh, it helps to have different factions in TCGs, and so if the IP has different factions, that's extremely helpful. Um, it is challenging if your IP has a strict good versus evil lineup where uh, it always has to be light side versus dark side, or it always has to be uh, A versus B. It's easier if the factions are a little more intermixed, where in something like Magic, you can have all the factions, or colors, I should say, uh, kind of ebbing and flowing and being united and divided by, by different characters. Uh, there, there's other bullets I have at a list somewhere of things that make IPs good fits for GCD. So those are some of the ones that come to mind. But Plants for Zombies benefits from a lot of that. There's a lot of awesome characters, the different power levels. Um, it does have a strong good versus evil. The name of the brand is literally Plants for Zombies. Uh, but I tried to make that a strength and like really lean into that asymmetry and make a TCG that was very asymmetrical, where one side is always plants, one side is always zombies, and they do not function at all the same way. Uh, even the turn structure is not symmetrical, and it's interwoven in a way that makes... Uh, really evokes the differences between those two sides. Um, but anyway, uh, I took the paper prototype, started showing around to some folks, getting their feedback, made it better, showed it to four folks, got feedback, made it better, showed it to eight folks, got the feedback, made it better. And because it was kind of like a secret uh, Black Ops project that no one at PopCap had like commissioned me to do, I was just like doing it my uh, like evening hours, uh, the buzz started going around. There was like a hot new secret project that people should like, you know, find the right people to ask about. And they eventually gave me an intern programmer to help me make a digital prototype to sort of try to prove out how that would look. And the intern I got was like a superstar, this guy, Rain Zhang, who's just like a, a miracle worker and a great programmer, even though he was very young at the time. He was still in college. And we achieved all our goals very rapidly. Uh, we made a lot more features than we ever thought we would in the sort of three months we had. And then we uh, pitched PopCap on making it for real. Uh, they gave us eight people to make a fancy prototype. We made a fancy prototype. We started pitching EA. And there were a lot of bumps and um, adventures along the way, but eventually we shipped Plants for Zombies Heroes, which is a uh, digital uh, trading card game on Android and iOS phones that uh, is live right now and is super awesome and I'm really proud of. Uh, and now I'm working on uh, something new over PopCap. Very exciting. I, uh, that's pretty amazing. So yeah, the, taking that initiative seems to be a very... Uh recurring theme in your in your career and uh you know <laughs> forcing uh your way into uh building trading card games or digital trading card games regardless of what else uh people are doing is phenomenal uh and uh i think the um the process it's funny yeah, you you know having the the rockstar developer is uh is so game changing like i i've i've been worked with a lot of development teams and you know worked on a couple of digital trading card games and it's 
uh, the difference of you have somebody who's really, really good at engineering and development versus someone who's just good uh, is, you know, 10x the, the amount you can do something in, in is is crazy. And then learning how to communicate with them and be able to build, you know, build things for digital teams is just a completely different world than when you're sort of building tabletop stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazily different, the two worlds, um, but they certainly have a lot of commonality. And in Seattle, there are tons of video game companies. There are tons of board game designers. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say tons of companies, but more here than any other city. And uh, there's a ton of crossover as a result. And you can see the sort of Seattle game design aesthetic being heavily influenced by board games, even when it is video games. So if you, uh, were, were there some principles that jumped to mind that you'd say were either crossover or things that changed dramatically when you go from working on a tabletop game to working on a digital game? Uh, the biggest thing is the size of the team. Um, the games that I've worked on digitally have had teams that are, uh, you know, not just my, my my feature, but the whole project has been from like as small as six to as large as a hundred. And uh, the amount of communication you have to do between a hundred people to get everybody on the same page about what you're building and why and what you're changing why is just uh, incredibly difficult. Do you have best practices like that you you use to communicate? What's what's worked? What's what maybe what's a, a story of a of a failure of communication and and how you solved uh, the problem? Uh, there are certainly different scopes of communication where there's some things that your uh, pod or feature needs to know and needs to communicate with each other uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, on an hour-to-hour -hour basis that you can't spread across 100 people. And so you sort of have to find the right size of folks to work on each part of the game and then make sure that they are very closely knit, that they're sitting right next to each other, they're talking every morning, that they're it's messaging each other all day. Uh, and then there are you know, larger groups of related features, you have four features that need to interact closely. And so they need to have representatives talk to each other, but not every single person of every single pod talk to each other all the time. And there are some things that are on the product level that all hundred people need to know, but you don't want, you don't necessarily need all hundred people to talk to all hundred other people in other ways. And so uh, the communication is sort of the fundamental challenge of large organizations in the world. Like it's a very unsolved problem. Uh, if corporations knew how to communicate effectively, they would all be a lot more productive. But I think all the companies I've been to struggle with that, um, including the tabletop ones and uh, other industries. My impression is that they struggle with it too. We're all we're all still figuring that out. If you if you know if you know the answer, let me know. Yeah, well, I think the classic problem of the classic problem of human coordination at scale, I don't think, is one that uh, we're going to solve necessarily on this podcast. Right, uh, right, right. But it's an interesting challenge, and it's obviously, you know, it's it, it's a sort of meta game design in its own right. You know, like you're trying to build systems that allow people to work together better, and um, you know, create the light, right level of communication so everybody knows enough about what other people are doing, but not so much bureaucracy and burden that your time is now all getting taken up by meetings or that you're you know, crushing the sort of individual things. Right, so like right. the specific idea of having these sort of small pods, you know, because in reality, and I found this, you know, if you want to make, uh, you know, design a game, right, and come up with new ideas, at the point where your team is more than five-ish people, you're not getting any new ideas. In fact, you're going to degrade the, poly the the quality of the ideas from that that group and, and we I, i've done work with the wharton school of business and we've you know reached a lot of research on creativity and teams and in fact very often literally just as soon as you start adding 
every person, you start degrading the ideas of each person individually. And there are steps there are steps you can take to avoid that where you you know force people to sort of individually ideate. And then you start bringing in groups and diverse diverse opinions in the right sort of way. And that can then then you do increase the number of ideas and the, the quality of the ideas. Um, but it's a very real problem. Um, because you have groupthink that fits in, that starts to sink in. You have right. like people will self-censor because they don't want to look stupid. Um, there's a lot of problems. Right. And, and you know, to be able to hold all of those different ideas in mind uh, so that you can create new combinations gets harder and harder the, the higher, the harder, the larger you scale the group. So even if you want to coordinate 100 people to design the best thing you can, you need to be breaking them up into small pods and, and assigning to specific things if you, if you want to actually get the, get high value out of them. Yeah, I think those are really good points, and uh, I agree that you should never just like, well, you should typically not bring eight people into a room and say, let's brainstorm something on this topic and just all start writing ideas on whiteboard, and instead you should say, uh, everybody take 20 minutes ahead of time and brainstorm individually, write down all your ideas in this Google Doc or what have you, and then we'll get in a room and process them all, uh, because you'll get a lot more output from each person than if you have to have eight people in a room waiting for their turn to speak or getting intimidated because they're afraid their ideas will look stupid or it's just not their turn or something like that. Um, so I definitely agree that there are things you can do, as you say, to sort of like try to uh, increase the idea quality and quantity in those cases. Yeah, no, exactly. So we, with the, the, the game I co-developed with Wharton is called the breakthrough game and it is basically forces that process. So it's, you'll figure out what is the problem we want to solve. You'll prep ahead of time. You'll write your own ideas on individual cards then we sort of force you to get out of your comfort zone by giving you these warp cards that like make you okay what would your idea look like if it cost a million dollars or what would your idea look like if it was for yeah. children or what would you know like sort of forcing you to like think outside the box a bit on your own and then you take all the cards shuffle them together start dealing them out and then recombining them with other people um so that it creates this forced uh you know now you start generating even new ideas uh, collectively but you don't lose the ones that you would have come out with from your own your own deep psyche. That sounds really cool. I want to want to play the game. The uh, what one example of sort of like uh, decision making or brainstorming technology that I don't think I had when I was at Wizards. I'm sure the technology in um, you know, generating creative ideas and evaluating them is 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 better now than it was when I was there, just because 11 years have passed since 08. Uh, but at the time, I think we were like at the stage of uh having a design team make card ideas for some purpose and then evaluating them, I feel like we were all writing things at our desks and then sending them in. And then somebody would stitch them together to file. We'd meet in a room and like go over the cards to file and talk about what we did and didn't like about them. Uh, and that's a fine sort of baseline way to proceed at the time. But what we've done when making new units, when making new cards at PopCap is to uh, have people submit their idea like first we'll, we'll meet and establish our criteria what are the goals of what we're trying to submit here what what kind what do we want this unit to achieve that we're all going to submit ideas to do and maybe we say oh we're going to make a new um wall in pubsy heroes and it has to be different than all the other walls we've made it has to be uh epic rarity which is the third highest rarity out of four and we don't want to have the same uh sun cost in any of the walls out there and we want to make sure that it's good against this uh this zombie threat that's been especially powerful recently. And we'll, we'll try to find as many goals as we can and define them because that uh, sort of puts constraints on you, as many other folks uh, have said, that, that breed not just creativity, but also can kind of just make this, the correct solution materialize. Like once you have 
you know, 12 constraints on what you need this card to do, what you need this unit to do, you're kind of done already. Like sometimes the solution's staring you right in the face because you're like, well, the cost can't be two, three, five, or six, and it can't have this property, that property, it must be doing those other things. And sometimes it's like the answer is is right in front of you. Like you you you've chipped away all, all the marble except for you know Michelangelo's David or something, and and you have this the answer right there, or at least you're close enough that four people submitting can can submit 24 things that will at some point hit on the head. But um, but anyway, we will uh, submit things offline into a shared Google Docs somewhere or other similar spreadsheet, and then we'll vote on them uh, independently without knowledge of other people's votes, and we'll log all of our votes into the software uh, in a way that blacks out the cell automatically after you log your rating in the cell. And so you have your own column where you put your ratings, there's rows or your cards, you're writing you know, three, four, five, three, two, one of how much you think the card is good. Sometimes we separate on humor versus mechanics because we try to make sort of um, you know, comedic games for Plants for Zombies. And uh, then we'll get in the room and we can sort by those initial ratings. And that's not the end of the story. The vote doesn't rule the day by itself, but it gives us a starting place of we don't have to talk about these cards in the bottom half. Like, just skip that whole part. And you save a lot of time by not bothering to value the ideas that everyone collectively has decided are bad. Uh, and the old technology of get in a room, go through the cards one by one in the order they submitted, and talk about why they're good or bad, you'd have to like spend a lot of time talking about cards that in reality nobody ever thought were good in the first place. And if the card gets a terrible rating and someone really wants to fight for it, they can bring it up and fight for it and talk about it even though it got a horrible rating. Uh, because sometimes there's something else everyone didn't see. And it's worth talking about after all, but we've saved a lot of time. Yeah, there's, there's, so I think those are, those are great principles. There's two, two other things that come to mind as, as I'm listening to that. One is, uh, you know, talking about bad ideas is often a great thing for spawning new, weird, good ideas. Um, you know, there's, I, I try to mm -hmm. encourage, you know, my team, I, I'd rather you submit 20 ideas to me and one of them turns out to be a real winner than if you submitted five ideas and we never got anywhere. Um, you know, that, that now obviously right. you have to balance that with how much time you're going to spend on each one, but, um, you know, the creative right. process being, being willing to kind of look stupid or say something like, and I, you know, often sort of probably this, I'm like, okay, I don't think this works, but what about this kind of direction? Right. And then somebody will be like, no, that doesn't work. But what if you did this now, all of a sudden you start moving down a path and you're like, oh, okay, cool. We never would have thought of that if we didn't start this stupid thing totally. that I started saying, uh, yeah, yeah. And often in the room, you end up picking none of the cards that are submitted, but you kind of Frankenstein something out of elements you like out of different cards, or somebody says, uh, just like you're um, saying, oh, I like that part, but what if it did this? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And you kind of like collectively uh, get somewhere that you didn't yeah, start. Yeah, you know, approach these things as kind of the, the improv, like, yes, and, uh, you know, like, all right, this is the part, this is the right, principle that's right. good, but let's try this. All right, well, how about this? Um, and then the other thing is like, I uh, there's a principle, I think I, I, originally i think i heard this from jeff bezos that sort of talked about you know how do you know uh -huh. when when a project you know they do all kinds of crazy projects all different types like how do you some of them work some of them don't how do you know like when to kill it and how do you know when you're still like innovating right and his principle was as long as there's somebody that i really trust like one of our like top people that's still like fighting for it we're gonna keep going you know right. if somebody that is really really wants to push a thing and like see it through and they're willing to like drive that bus okay, we're going to keep seeing if we can figure something out. But, and then, you know, it might take years, but you can kind of see, uh, you know, trust people that they're going to, they're going to keep pushing and try to find a solution. And, and I, I try to encourage that as well, even if I'm like, man, you've been working on this a long time and I think this is really dumb, but you know, eventually they get to something right. good and that's, it's awesome. Cause you know, a lot of my ideas seem dumb and crazy and people thought they were that. And now, you <laughs> know, now I have a company and make games for a living. So yeah, yeah. PopCap has a uh, history of that as well, where uh, 
when Peggle was made, it was originally two people in a corner working on like some crazy idea about a bouncing ball. Uh, and they were just prototyping for like a year and a half or something. And they had, like nothing to show for it. Everyone's like, what are those guys doing over there? But the company had enough trust in them that they're just like, yep, keep taking paychecks, keep, you know, this figure stuff out for a year and a half. And it's not fun yet. But then eventually it became fun and then it became amazing. And then Peggle was like a huge achievement for PopCap. And uh, organizations can't always afford to spend that much money and time and trust on a couple of folks with a dream. But sometimes they can, and sometimes EA and uh, PopCap have been able to do so. And PC Heroes was sort of an example of that as well. And so that's awesome when um, you know they have the ability to do what you're saying. And what I guess uh, Jeff is saying, or, or, or about you, Jeff, uh, that they can afford to just back somebody they trust and, and let them kind of like go off their own. Yeah, and, and and you you know, so you you have startup experience, and, and you know, you, there is this reality of okay we only have so many resources to spend and if you're amazon that number is much much higher um uh <laughs> and ea and, and uh obviously popcap are similarly very high uh that there's they can they can sort of spend more uh but i think in general you know you you should always be spending 10 percent to 20 percent of your resources on just kind of the crazy moonshotty stuff that you never know what's going to come of it um and you know, right figure it out and from it there I mean, certainly if you, like, uh, even 10% might be out of reach for some folks, but I, I certainly agree with you. And in people's own lives, if they can spend 10% of their time on uh, board game design that's something they're interested in, then that's obviously, uh, can, can be enough. Just to yeah, get started. and if it and, starts um, smaller than that, it's like, hey, you know what? I got 20 minutes a day. That's all I got to start working. Okay, right. great. You know how much further you're going to be in a year than somebody that didn't spend that time? Or two, 10 years? You know, it's it's, right. it's those things add up. Uh, and, and so I, I often... I do try to emphasize that for people too, because you know not everybody's as lucky as they can't you know do this full time. But if you want, if it's something that's important to you, investing at least some time in it is pretty critical. And just think about things in the car, in the shower, on the bus. Uh, a lot of my breakthroughs have happened in those places. And sometimes I just like have something on the back burner, and I know I generally want to solve it, but I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm not actively working on it right now, but I'm listening to music or something, and the answers start to pop in. And like some part of your brain is figuring it out kind of, you know, in another task. Yes. Yeah, well, that kind of creativity, what I've, I've heard referred to, I like the expression, um, bud, bath or bus, or sorry, bed, bed bath or bus, uh, as the things yeah. that sort of like can kick in your creative memory that like I've left, you know, I've left this, the environment I'm in, I'm sleeping, I'm traveling. Uh, those things can kind of really get you to let go and make connections you didn't make before. But to be successful right. at that, to have those eureka moments, you have to have done the work beforehand. Right. You have to sort of fill your head right. with the problem and the details of the problem. And then you may not be able to solve it while you're pounding away at your keyboard. But when the, then your brain right. will continue to process those things, as you said, on the back burner. Uh, and that can unlock uh, some pretty amazing ideas. I, I have a, I have yeah, a notepad it, in my shower uh, for, those, for when those ideas <laughs> show up. That's funny. You, you don't just have to, like, uh, you know, draw with soap on, on the wall. Like a, a couple oh, of crude yeah, no, diagrams. That, that, that gets creepy. Yeah, yeah. I, there was a, there was a there was a marker thing that you could write on the walls that I tried, but that looked like it was like a murder that's scene funny. or something. It was not. It was not okay. So, so now I have a little notepad that's it, waterproof. It, it, <laughs> it was less a beautiful mind, more psycho. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Wasn't quite cutting it. Uh, a, another. Uh, I just want to say another key thing about companies that are trying to let people explore and kind of go off on a limb a little bit is that um, I think it's really important to do so at a low fidelity level. And make sure that they're like using a pencil and not like using 10 engineers to build something and try to figure out that that'll be fun, only discover that it's not. 
Uh, and a lot of the times that um, PopCap has gotten into trouble over the years has been when uh, they ramped up too early and had an idea they were excited about. And instead of having two people work on it in a corner for a year, they said, here are 20 engineers and 10 artists build this. And then as they're building, they're figuring it out. Uh, Ooh, actually that part of it wasn't good, but we spent six months and tons of money building it. We have to throw it out and do something else. Uh, but the costs are, are very real at that scale. Um, and so even having learned this lesson, we still kind of stumble sometimes and overcommit too early to projects uh, because we get excited about them, want to get them out there. But it is, um, it has been a, a, a bitter pill to swallow sometimes that we have too early uh, gone to a high fidelity level with working code to explore an idea instead of just having a couple of folks and some prototypes or some paper prototypes that can more easily discover what is uh, what's yeah. wrong. So there's, yeah, there's two 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 great lessons in there. I want to underscore you. One is like even if you want to be making you know digital games, figuring out how to be able to prototype those things in in paper form is is incredibly invaluable. And and basically that the second be just look the name of the game is how many iteration cycles do you get before you run out of gas, right? Like and yeah. and if you are so if your burn rate is you know two people. Uh, or just kind of your spare time if you're hanging out at home, then you can get a lot of iterations in if you're keeping your cost to iterate low. You're just going to like get things. If it's just changing a piece of paper, it's very different than saying, hey, I need you to recode this level or recode this engine. Um, and right. so it's absolutely critical. Um, and we spent a year in, you know, doing when we were doing SoulForge, we spent a year just doing paper prototyping before we had even hired a programmer. Uh, and then, you know, we scaled up pretty fast and it, you know, all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, nope. Now my burn rate is 10x what it was last month. Now that 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 changes the equation a lot, and you got to move a lot faster. And if you get it wrong, well, that's the end of that. Um, so I, I've I've learned that lesson the hard way myself. So <laughs> uh, very yeah, and with uh, with, with I, I like what you said about um, the number of iterations you can achieve before you run out of time being linked to the quality. And I guess you mentioned that in the book as well. Uh, I heard somebody saying at a GDC talk or something that um, they love investing in tools to help uh, the builds propagate more quickly and to help QA uh, run their passes more quickly because it reduces the time that it takes to uh, get your new software after you made the change and make sure that it's working and make sure that it's uh, playing well. And that if it takes you like two days to uh, build out a new version after you made your change, then the number of iterations you get is is vastly decreased versus if it takes twenty minutes. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, I've actually invested a fair amount in, even though I mostly do tabletop games. Like I have, you know, built custom tools to better and more quickly prototype and iterate on those, um, because it's like, yeah, if I can save even ten percent time, you know, that adds up dramatically over several years, and and often the difference is much much greater than that. And that's where I tell people like. You know, even if you're at home and prototyping, like use the tools that are around you, like use decks of cards, write down things with marker, like take a, de a game that already exists. And, I, you know, this may be a, a decent transition into uh, talking about deck building games, because like when I first came up with the idea for Ascension, I had a set of Dominion. I was like, oh, man, I wish these cards came out in a more varied way. And I just for the first time, I just shuffled uh -huh. the Dominion deck together and dealt it out and see what happens. Right. And, you know, obviously it's not a totally great experience, but it was enough to get me to say like, OK, this might work. And now I can right. iterate much faster uh, and, and before I'm going to invest time in building a whole card file, etc. Yeah. And in, in terms of, of uh, rapid iterations, like the one place I think I would differ from a lot of tabletop designers is that um, 
I often see people bringing prototypes to uh, playtesting group sessions that are just like uh, Times New Roman fonts on some paper that they cut up. And I think like doing stuff for yourself, it helps keep your iterations faster to have no art, to have no graph design, to just have words on a card, to have terrible card names, have stupid concepts for the uh, different elements in the game. But once you bring it like even to the level of uh, eight acquaintances at a group playtesting session, I feel like I get better, more clear feedback when I include a decent graphic design. I include some art in the elements. I like try to think about vaguely reasonable metaphors to cards and not just call them like attacker, defender, support. Uh, because it's hard for people to like sort of see what makes the game fun and what it even is when there's no art and words. Like when I when I play a prototype and it's just fonts on a card, I get bored. It's hard for me to attach to it. Like theme is so important to me in game design that when there's no theme at all or when the theme's intentionally stupid with sort of like very bad playtest names on purpose, then uh, that is enough to kind of bounce me out of it and make it hard for me to have fun with it. And so even though it makes iteration times longer uh, to have art and graphic design, I try to do that with my prototypes. I'm going to show other people. If I'm just for myself, I don't know how. Yeah, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think it's just a matter of like, you know, at what rate do you scale, right? When do you move from, so like, you know, if you right. are working with, it's one of the reasons why I love having a lot of great game designer friends and people that I work with that are, you know, they can see past all that stuff. So I can do a few iterations with that group before it has to start looking pretty. And then, yeah, if I'm going to start showing it to friends and acquaintances, I got to, you know, at least, you know, make some efforts to, you know, making, right. telling the story here. And then over time it'll, all right, now we're going to invest in some real art or, you know, now we're going to look at, you know, okay, what is this real, what's really happening here? Um, so I think right. it's just about as you become more confident in your core design assumptions, you can scale up. Right. And sometimes you have to scale up faster, right? If somebody's listening to this and they don't have any game designers or any community of people that can like help you at a, you know, looking at Times New Roman on paper, uh, then yeah, you will ha and often have to invest more in your prototypes up front so that you can get feedback that's proper. And, you know, sometimes you can sort of filter the feedback a little bit and see where people are, you know, the problem would be solved if there was good art, but, but sometimes there's no choice but to actually put right. it on there. Right. And as you say, the people that are very close to you and you trust really well, it's a little easier to give them no art or not much. And the people that you don't know as well, they kind of need a little more help to trust you enough to get into it, trust you enough that this will be fun, or it might have a have a uh, a prayer of being fun. Uh, the, the people you don't know as well need a little more art to kind of get them yeah. into it. Um, and just, just one more thing about the length of iteration cycles. A huge challenge in making uh, mobile games for phones is that a lot of them have metagames that last a long time. You want people to be in these games uh, as a service for months and for years, and you want to have them have a cool ramp of things they unlock, things that they uh, achieve, things that they earn, things that they acquire, kind of on that pathway that can last years. And that includes different cycles of gameplay that last five minutes, that last uh, an hour, that last three days, last a month, that last uh, different lengths of time. And testing those different lengths of time and figuring out their fun is is very, very hard and almost impossible. Like the number of iterations you get on, hey, is this game fun to play from the time you install it to a year later is like zero iterations from the time you make the game to the time you publish it. Like you're kind of crossing your fingers and comparing to existing games in the marketplace that you think have good year-long metagames and saying like, we think we're doing that or we're doing our version of that. Is that good enough? We hope so. We've never gotten the chance to test it as a real person would with the final version from day zero to day 365. Um, and so it's 
it's tough to make that fun. And sometimes by the time you realize that the first month of gameplay doesn't uh, fit together well, or doesn't pace well, uh, you know, many, many months have gone by and that's very interesting. Challenging. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that there's not like beta groups that you run through some of those, those experiences before you go full. You, you do, but the problem is that it's, it's changing throughout that whole time they're testing it. And so even over the course of the month that the beta tester has the game, it's a very different game at the end of the month than it was at the beginning because you're furiously changing features and changing content as you go. And so uh, by the time they get to the end of three months of playing with it, uh, it's a different game than it was at the start. Sometimes so much so that you almost have to throw it out and like start a new group. Like um, it's it's ever changing, so the tests aren't accurate. Interesting. I guess I Can, and when you're talking about building a year-long meta game in the products, mobile products. Uh, you know, I'm immediately thinking of like a magic meta game with new cards releasing and people competing against each other. Is it sort of similar, or what are the things that like create a meta game in a mobile a mobile process that lasts a year ahead of time? I guess what I, what I mean is, um, if you think about somebody playing uh, Clash of Clans or Clash Royale, there are new units they are unlocking uh, through play a year into it, and so. Uh, is that unit valuable to someone who's been playing the game for a year? It's hard to tell without actually playing the game yourself for a year on the exact same path that the finished product will lead people on. And so that's almost impossible to test because the product is changing as you go. And so it's not as much like um, in the way Magic releases new sets and, and that's a metagame. I mean more, uh, why does the player want to pick up the game again on day 300 uh, as opposed to switching to another mobile game instead? And a lot of the times the answer to that is they have long-term goals they're trying to achieve uh they have a community they're involved in they have uh you know friends or a guild to play the game with them that they want to support that's, that are depending on them and it's hard to test all those things in the context of a development studio sure yeah so this is this actually you know we touched on this but then really dig deep into this idea of like content game design and business models which this all ties around right like so as you're designing a game where you need people to be you know logging in every day and your goal is to keep them sort of over a year and there's some sort of trade-offs of free-to-play engagement to you know money spend and what percentages that's going to be i'm curious how that you know design or you can you know you can use that um, Plants vs. Zombies is a specific example or, or other ones like how you think about design for those kinds of mobile freemium games and, and how that changes what types of things you build compared to you know more traditional tabletop yeah the uh, the the board game business model is very straightforward in that we're going to sell you a box it has some things in it uh, we hope you'll like it and you'll tell your friends and that'll get good reviews and that other people will buy it as a result and that'll be enough uh, sales to uh, make the project have been worthwhile. And then the board game company will release more products and kind of repeat. And then if it's a game that can be expanded, and some can easily be expanded and some can't, and it's a blessing uh, for, for you and for me that Ascension and Legendary both uh, uh, lend themselves very well to new expansions and new versions. And uh, in a way, the players welcome and clamor for and are like eager to get more, more content for them. Yeah. The, uh, the booster pack model, the magic... Uh, sort of pioneered from a game perspective is different in that you can buy $10 of magic cards and play them for a year. And some people do, uh, you can buy a thousand dollars of magic cards and have a different experience and anywhere in between. And even above thousand dollars, some people spend even more than that. And, uh, it is a lot trickier to figure out what are the ways that you want to make it worthwhile for someone to buy more magic cards once they already have tons of them. 
and a lot of people have so many magic cards, but they're like really, really want to get some more. And magic can be an expensive hobby, but when I think about that, I think, but the value people are getting out of it is even greater than the money they're spending. That's why they're spending the money on it, is that they it's so fun. It's like the best game in the world, essentially. Uh, it's it's giving so much value to lives. It's given incredible value to my life as a consumer, as well as someone who eventually worked on it. Uh, compared to the money that I that I spent on. Well, so so it's and and this. Uh... You know, I, I agree that the the sort of business model and the the fact that Magic has this sort of randomized discovery process and this sort of growth curve is part of what made it so compelling. Is that you know, as new cards came out and you could build new things and new strategies became available to you, either just because you're getting started and buying new cards or because new content has been released, um, is really fascinating. But as everybody knows, there is that drawback of like, wow, okay, at some point for players, if they really want to see everything and explore everything, it can get very very expensive. And that's actually where I think the deck building genre came about, that, that a deck building game is, is very much trying to get the joy of that discovery and the sort of creation um, and put it into a single box that you can buy for, you know, 40 bucks and, and, and play as much as you want and get that, the sort of, you know, full experience of that release, um, but still have its own different, more manageable expandability model. Um, that was sort of main thing that attracted me to it in the first place. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. And there are a lot of sort of former Magic players out there who loved it at some time in their lives, but then things change. They have kids, their career uh, heats up, and they can't go to the Magic store and play tournaments like they used to. Um, and so other ways that they can scratch that itch are great for them. And that's certainly one of the things the deck building games bring to the table. That is awesome. And then also just their gameplay uh, of playing something like Ascension or Dominion Legendary is fundamentally very different than the gameplay of Magic and has its own sort of cool... Uh, things you can do and things you can achieve and things you can experience that, that magic doesn't itself provide. So, all right, I believe, uh, and you know, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you and I have made more sets of deck building games than any humans on the planet. Um, I believe that, yeah, there's I, I the fifteenth ascension set is on shelves now. You mentioned the twentieth at least uh, ascension. Oh, sorry, uh, legendary set is on shelves now. Uh, yeah, I think we're to t- up to 21 and a, c- a couple more in the can. Yeah, so, and, you know, who knows, by the time this podcast release, we'll probably have another 20 sets. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, we, we I, I sort of want to dig into that. And you mentioned kind of before we started recording that you had uh, you had some thoughts both on the good and bad of uh, Ascension as an inspiration. Because, I you know, obviously sort of Dominion came out and everybody was like, oh, my God, there's this whole new thing. Uh, and I, I, you know, came out with Ascension and we had Nightfall and a couple, uh, couple other games that all came out. And then Legendary became a real dominant player in the marketplace. Uh, what kind of was your thinking? How did that get started? And, uh, and maybe we'll even dig into sort of thinking about deck building today. But let, let, let's start at the beginning. Cool. I appreciate you asking. I definitely, um, you know, uh, I'm very interested in the topic of, of deck building, you know, game design. And I know you are, too. And it's fun to sort of like, have the opportunity to have this conversation with um, someone who's been such a... Uh, pioneer and a success in this area. And uh, Ascension was, uh, it's an amazing game. I love it to death. I played it hundreds of times, uh, mostly digitally. And the the Playdeck uh, digital version of Ascension is also just an incredible adaptation. Like it flows so well. It's very fast. It's very, uh, the UI is fun. The games just zip along. And so I, I've been really impressed by that. Um, it's also a cool part of the story of game design that it's still like a fairly young industry in the modern sense of board game design. Obviously you have uh, chess and Go going back a very long time, and those are definitely board games that were designed by somebody. But in terms of like the modern renaissance of board game design, it's still a pretty young field. And as a result, it's evolving very quickly. And every uh, crop of games that comes out 
learns and benefits from the lessons and examples of the ones that came before. And so the overall, uh, you know, the, 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 the games that come out in a certain year get to learn from the ones that came out a few years before. And so often they find ways to build on the past and uh, put forth new takes on it and benefit from the ones that, that, that came a little bit uh, ahead of them. And so they we're all, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and you know, I learned a lot from magic, learned a lot from Ascension, learned a lot from other games that I use to sort of build out what legendary eventually became. Yep, if that makes sense. Of course. Yeah. That's we're all, uh, I, this is sort of summing tangential point along this. I, I talk about in the book, like, all creativity is theft, right? You are bringing, you do, nobody uh-huh. comes up with ideas just out of the blue. They are all like taking things that existed before and combining them in new ways and solving problems that have, you know, come up because of problems that got solved before that. Um, so that's just, that's the game we're all playing. Right. And Dominion is also just a, a breathtaking achievement in that it can be considered just a game amongst other games, but it turned out that it did pioneer a new category. Uh, and it's an incredible achievement in game design. And it, uh, comes up with sort of new ideas no one else had had before and it's great it has many expansions itself that i've enjoyed and i learned a ton from that as well and i i wouldn't obviously obviously like i don't think ascension or legendary would have been made at least not on schedule they were if dominion hadn't come first so obviously very very grateful uh to donald x uh for, for making that one yep totally agree uh and so legendary has many genres that are parents to it it is a deck building game, and it's also a cooperative game where many players work together to beat the game itself. Uh, you are recruiting Marvel superheroes. For those who have not played it before, you're getting Iron Man and Thor and Spider-Man to help you out, and you're getting stronger and stronger at fighting supervillains that sort of uh, come out of this deck. But while you're doing that, the game itself is fighting back against you and trying to win the game for evil. So every game has its own mastermind, like Magneto or Loki or Thanos. And uh, the Mastermind has a different scheme every game, where sometimes they're trying to uh, flood the planet with melted glaciers, and sometimes they're trying to uh, suck out all the oxygen for the world, and sometimes they're trying to fight the Kree Scroll War, or uh, it's the Dark Phoenix Saga, or all these sort of memorable storylines from the Marvel Universe. You get to replay, and any Mastermind can sort of lead any scheme to crush you. And uh, every turn, the, the bad guys do something, you get to do something, and they're creeping towards an evil victory uh, in which all players will lose. You're trying to beat the Mastermind four times to win for yourself, and then if you all win collectively, then one of you is the super best winner and is the, the most legendary hero if you score more points than all your friends. Uh, and so there's a whole era of cooperative board games that had a huge influence on Legendary as well because it is a cooperative board game as much as it's a deck building game. Uh, and then finally, superhero games have their own tropes, their own... Uh, wrinkles that had a big influence on legendary as well um and so i played a ton of deck building games and a ton of sessions of each of them and i played a ton of cooperative games and i love both genres played a lot of superhero stuff too and so all those things kind of percolating in my mind sort of helped to birth what legendary eventually became uh one piece of advice i would have for aspiring game designers is as you are playing the games that you enjoy or that you don't enjoy um keep an inner monologue and sometimes a vocal monologue of what you like and don't like about them, what you would change about them if you could. And if you keep talking about, hey, this game is fun, but I hate this part, or this game is fun, but it'd be even better, blah, 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 then that is game design. And that is part of the path to making something new. And me playing a ton of sessions of cooperative games and very separate games and thinking to myself, hey, I like this game, but here's what will make it even better. Or wouldn't it be cool if, uh, and, you know, 
20 threads of those conversations across years eventually got me to the point where I had in my head enough uh, of a sense of what I liked about those three genres that I could uh, put forth something that was uh, the things I liked the most about the genres, as we knew the genres hadn't had before, combined in a way that hadn't been done before, and uh, hopefully make something that, that people would end up liking. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I agree. And, and another sort of way I put this for people is like, you need to change when you're playing games you know, and you want to be a designer, you have to change the way you think while you play. It's the difference of sort of playing and being immersed in what's happening completely versus sort of looking at what is what emotions are coming up, what's making them come up, how could it be better, how could it be worse, and constantly sort of thinking in those terms. Um, you know, and that is right. a really important shift because you're, you know, that's where you're sort of honing your skill of game design and assessment and, you know, the job of sort of crafting emotional experiences for people. Uh, you can see where it's working and where it's not um, in, every time you play games. And that's sort of one of the easiest ways for people to sort of make that shift without, you know, changing anything about their lives externally. You're just changing the sort of internal response saying, okay, let me watch and pay more attention here as to what's coming up and what's, you know, what's working, what isn't, and when are people checking out of a game and when are they super invested and what, right. you know, how would I get one thing to change to the other kind of thing. Right. I think that's a good point. And even if you don't have your own game prototypes that you've made so far, you can essentially be running playtest sessions of existing published board games whenever you play them. And if your friends are in this mindset of they want to think more about game design too, you can sort of have these conversations as you're playing of, how would we collectively make this game better if we could? And sometimes you even can make that change to fly and see what happens. Sometimes it's harder to make a change like that. Uh, and when I play board games with my game designer friends, we're all critiquing it all the time. And a lot of them are pretty harsh critics, but we're always saying, why does it do this? This breaks this principle. Uh, this game should know better not to do thing X, Y, Z. This part's frustrating. This part could be streamlined. And they're always sort of trying to talk about making better as they go. And then that same kind of mentality bleeds over into when we're evaluating actual prototypes people have made for themselves and trying to say how to make it better, how to make it better. And in the latter case, the difference is that you're more likely to say, let's change that, let's change that, let's change that as you go with the author of the game sort of making those decisions. Um, whereas when playing the, the published ones, we're less likely to actually change as we go. We mostly complain about it or uh, sing its praises as we go. But oh, yeah. let it no, Game designers get love to complain about other people's games. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you learn that way. I mean, I, it's 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 helpful. And I think as a designer, it's also good to uh, welcome critiques, to encourage people to express things that are negative. Whenever I'm running playtests of Legendary or the digital games, I'm always telling people uh, it's helpful to say things you don't like about it. It's helpful to say what sucks. It's helpful to say what's frustrating. Like, don't don't hold back to sort of spare our feelings. We'd rather you tell us the parts you hate. And that is a great uh, lead in to you telling me what was so bad about Ascension that you solved in Marvel <laughs> Legendary. That's so funny. The um, yeah, and, and as I was saying before, like I, I love Ascension Death. It, it's a masterpiece in many ways, and I I have played it a ton. Uh, in some ways, like Legendary is like a, a love letter to the deck building games and the cooperative games that have come before. So I so 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 as as as, uh, as you let in, I sort of have some thoughts on this topic. So. Playing Dominion, uh, it's a great game. One of the things that I uh, like about it is that when you see the initial setup of Dominion, it sparks all these ideas in your head where you say, oh, this is going to be a especially cool game Dominion because this board of 10 different stacks of cards has a lot of uh, bonus actions that let you play more action cards, a lot of card draw that let me draw more actions, I'll get to play them together, and that'll be, that'll be an awesome combo. I'm excited to sort of see how this setup plays out. 
Or you might say, this Dominion setup, because uh, it's different every time in that game, uh, has a really expensive action and a cheaper card that copies action, so that's a combo, and I can use one to copy the other. And yeah, and so just to frame, I assume most of our audience is familiar with this, but with you know the main distinction between Dominion and Ascension is and uh, Dominion has a fixed set of cards that are laid out at the beginning of the game, and those are the only ones that will be available for the entirety of the game. Whereas Ascension has a changing center row of cards that you know you that you see the first six, but they're always you never know what's going to come up next. Right, and so the box of Dominion has something like uh, 25 different card names and 10 copies of each. And every time you play, you pull out maybe, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, but something like 10 of those 25 stacks, put them all in front of you, and throughout the game, you can buy off those identical stacks, and the stacks never change. Uh, and so the, some of the downsides of that Dominion setup are that you have to read and process 10 different cards before you take your first turn. You think through all the combinations, all the things you would want to do with them, and that's a lot of reading and processing to do before you take your first turn. Like people want to get going and play a board game, they don't want to just be reading all day. And you kind of have to like read and think a lot before you start Dominion, or you have to uh, just be okay with starting play before you've read all the cards and making some suboptimal moves because you haven't bothered to read everything yet. It helps a little bit in that game that if your first hand is three gold, then you can sort of ignore all the things on the board that uh, cost more than three. But you kind of can't ignore them because you need to be making your strategy of what you're going to get now that will combo the things you'll get later to make an effective deck. And so you have to do a lot of processing. Uh, and another downside about the Dominion setup is that once you start the game, you don't get much new information as you go through. Uh, sometimes your hand has different numbers of gold, so you can buy three instead of four. That's new information. Or sometimes your opponent takes more attacks, so you need more defenses. But on the whole... Uh, your initial read and analysis of the Dominion board is likely going to be correct throughout the game. Or maybe you'll learn that the combo you thought was good actually sucks, but then it's sort of too late. But um, you're not going to be surprised by new awesome things happening in the middle of the game of Dominion. It's great fun to watch your combos play out, to watch yourself get stronger, to build a deck that uh, is a stronger, stronger engine that's zipping along and try to race your, uh, your frenemies. But you have no revelations as you proceed. And that's not awesome. A big part of board games and other games being fun is like new and surprise things happening and how you react to that. Uh, so to contrast with Ascension, there's no initial setup at all, which is super fast and super awesome. And you get new information every turn as you go because new cards are flipping off the center row. So every turn is a new decision, and that part is super great. Uh, the, the parts I don't like as much about Ascension compared to Dominion are that when you set up a game of Ascension and the setup is basically take the deck out of the box and you're done, uh, you don't get the feeling of, ooh, this, this game of Ascension is going to be extra special because it's got this weird combo in the setup that's going to be extra fun to play out. Like, you see a blank deck and the cards that flip it in the center row, and you can evaluate those, but you don't get a sense of, like, oh, this one has a clone and a powerful effect I can combine. Oh, this one has a bunch of little cantrips, meaning cards that draw an extra card, and ways to empower you to play a bunch of little extra cantrips. Or this one has... Uh, a benefit from copper and a card that gives you more copper and together those will be better than they were before. You don't have that initial sense of like this game of Ascension is going to be different from all the other games of Ascension I've played. And then as uh, you play through Ascension, for me, uh, the experience ends up being largely similar to previous games of Ascension I've played. Sometimes I like uh, lean into a synergy where I get a bunch of like, uh, I'm not going to say this word, but like Makana constructs. How do I really say that? Yeah, Makana. Okay. Uh, as close ish or you lean into board cards that thin your deck, or you lean into these um, green cards that are uh, caring about other green cards, but you often kind of like end up with a little bit of everything. You take good cards, and your friends take good cards, and the game has a feeling like largely similar to the other games of Ascension I've played. And so like, I've like, 
thoroughly enjoyed playing the hundreds of games of Ascension I've played, but they all kind of like blur together. Like, I don't have that many games of Ascension that I could describe to you that are like singularly memorable. Like, this one time Ascension, I did this cool thing because these combos were unusual. They all kind of merge into a collective, like, delightful experience that is like always reliable, it's always fun, and uh, it's. Uh, it's hard for me to pick individual moments out of that sort of like tapestry of ascension. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, playing the Nightfall deck building game, it's a little more obscure, but Playdeck did do an awesome adaptation of it. Uh, the colors on the cards really matter. Like they have cards in the game that are only good if you played a red card before them. Uh, although it's a little too complicated in that they have these moons in the cards and. You play this card against bonus. The previous card was red, but the previous card also has to say uh, the card after me is blue or something. So you only really get to match with the cards. And the first one is red that loves blue, and the second one is blue that loves being played after red. If that makes sense, it's hard to explain yeah. without, without the visuals. But uh, the, the constraints are too specific. But it's cool that um, some of the cards are especially more powerful when there are other cards in the mix. Like the context of other cards and stacks explicitly changes the value. Uh, and then with the Penny Arcade deck building game that was also done on Playdeck, the, the ones that I could play on iOS myself a hundred times, I learned a lot more from than some of the paper ones that I could only play, you know, eight times with my friends, if that makes sense. Yep. Uh, iteration times. Yeah. Being able to get, no, exactly. Being able to get right? It's a, it's a theme. Uh, so Penny Arcade has a couple of currencies. The cards are pretty simple. It's, like, flavorful. It's a, it's a great IP. Um, they have end bosses, I believe that you can't beat until you're really strong. Um, Paul Sadasanti made that game, who is a designer who worked with me at Wizards making magic sets and now works, I'm pretty sure, at Riot Games still. And it was inspiring to see him come out with Penny Arcade because I knew him as a colleague and I thought, wow, like if he can do it, like maybe I can do it. And seeing someone you know like achieve something makes it much more plausible that you yourself can. Uh, and I hear that for a lot of people who are like trying to get the Magic Pro Tour or something. That once their friend got on, like, oh, I play my friend all the time. I sometimes beat him. If my friend get on, maybe I can get on too. Um, and so that was yeah. inspiring to make me think that I could sort of do something like this um, by myself. Uh, in cooperative games, is it okay if I could just kind of keep keep going on this a little bit? Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay. So uh, some of the cooperative games that were a big influence are things like. Uh, Shadows over Camelot, Flashpoint, Fire Rescue, Battlestar Galactica, Pandemic, Arkham Horror, and they all share the property that the the game is trying to beat you. You can all collect loose of the game, and every turn there's going to be a bad guy action that happens essentially, and then a good guy action that happens essentially, and that makes them roughly balanced for a number of players because uh, you can have three players, and then every round you have three bad actions, three good guy actions, or five players, and every round you have five bad guy actions and five good guy actions. Um, and I have a bunch of friends and family members who do not want to play cutthroat games. I love competing. I love going to magic tournaments. I love like crushing life from my enemies, uh, with my magical spells, but some people <laughs> don't like that. And they're basically not willing to play games like that at all. And so having them in mind, maybe want to have a cooperative element in the game and also just loving the feeling of, can we beat this unique challenge that Arkham Horror presents, uh, and the unique challenge is different every time you play Arkham Horror in some ways because you have different sort of ancient uh, ones you have to fight. Although in some ways they don't affect the game as much as they could. Um, but that was something that was very exciting to me and was like a new thing that other deck building games hadn't done before to be cooperative. Uh, and in real life with Legendary, there are some groups that play it completely cooperatively and ignore the victory points entirely. And are just like, why do those even in the game? I don't get it. 
and some players that are like, no, I play this game to defeat my friends and get more points than them. Like, yeah, if we die, then we all lose. And that's, you know, one of the outcomes that can happen. But like, what I really care about is like being, being the best and beating my friends. And, uh, it's fun to me that some players that say hurt, like, uh, there's a Hulk card. That's like, a uh, a crazy rampage where he's going to wound all the other players, but do a really big attack. Cause he's just Hulk's going out of control. And that's, that's what he does in the movies, and the comics. And the cooperative groups are like, well, it's a powerful card, but a drawback is he wounds everybody. And the competitive players are like, this is my jam. Like, I want to get a powerful card that hurts all my friends and slows them down. Like, that's awesome for me. And they both see the card as sort of like making sense from a design perspective, but for different reasons. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's it's great to be able to, to appeal to both of those audiences. It's not an easy task to do. You know, one of the things that I learned um, at, with Ascension is actually it has a far better appeal to a lot of the non-competitive groups you know the sort of you know uh, a lot of times the sort of girlfriend or boyfriend of a of a gamer can play ascension with them because even though it is a competitive game it doesn't feel like as directly competitive like there's not a lot of direct attacking you kind of get to build and do your own thing and kind of either even if you lose you build up your strategy and you get more powerful over time and you right. kind of get to the end and then you just see what happens. Um, and so then being able to add a layer to that where it's like, Oh no, no, we actually do have a collective victory or collective defeat moment at the end. I think even further solidifies the, 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 the joy for that type of player. Right. Exactly. And, uh, Ascension is a race. Essentially you're not punching each other as much as you are trying to get the farthest by the end of the game. So sometimes you, you know, uh, fight bad guys that hurt your friends or something, but for the most part you're racing. Well, yeah, and 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 I I actually I want to dig in a little bit because I think the story of the bad guys is a really interesting thing that we both have used in our in our games, right? So so right in Ascension, I never attack another player, right? It just, you know, I'm all but I can destroy monsters, and the story of those monsters is like, well, I stopped them, but they did something bad to everybody else, right? Um, and so you, in fact, are, you know, doing the thing to the player. But the story, it feels very different than if it was a, I paid for resources to buy a card that hurt you. Right. Um, and and similarly, there's actually a really clever trick, I think, that you used um, in uh, Legendary, which is when the monsters strike you, when the villains strike you, they often force you to banish heroes, which is kind of actually usually a good thing for the players. Um, but it's told in this story that makes it a lot more makes a lot more sense. Um, right. You know, as I mentioned earlier, earlier in the uh, in the talk, we were, you know, I, the, the chapel strategy in Dominion is sort of one of the, the iconic thing of like realizing that getting cards out of your deck is actually one of the most powerful things you can do. No new player gets that, especially I mean, you know, I was a pro tour player and game designer and I, I didn't get it at first. Right. A casual player never gets right. it. And even in Ascension, we have a bunch of effects that make you banish cards or allow you to banish cards out of your deck. And new players never want to do that. Right. Uh, because it just doesn't seem like, why would I want to get rid of cards? My cards are what are awesome. Those are the things I need. And so tying that into like a villain that sort of forcibly does this to you and gets you to do the things that are going to move the ball forward. It feels like a good story because villains are killing heroes. It's a bad quote unquote effect but it's serving this purpose of making the decks more efficient and moving the game forward. So I thought that was a really clever uh, way to frame it. Cool. I appreciate saying so. And it definitely is learning from Dominion's Chapel and Ascension's, uh, you know, trashing effects or the void or banishing, uh, whatever the term is, you know, so many terms, pardon me. Um, yeah. So I agree with you. And I'd seen players in Dominion and Ascension reject those cards as not being appealing. And so I took two tactics to make them appealing and legendary and, and i definitely wanted to include that 
uh, element of thinning your, your deck and arguably you sort of have to include it in deck building the game. But it's just super fun for people who get it to like thin the cards out that are bad and know they're making the deck more efficient, know they're going to draw them, their, their better cards more, more uh, frequently. And so one of the things I did was... Um, as you fight enemies, sort of tie it to the the fights, like you said. So it says you, you fight this bad guy and says fight colon KO one of your heroes. And so the flavor is like he died in the fight. You know, your brave uh, shield trooper died while fighting Juggernaut, and that's why you take him out of your deck. And early players might even see that as a drawback of like, oh man, my shield trooper died in the fight, but I guess then's the brace. You got to kill Juggernaut. I got to stop him. So I'll suck up this bad thing that happened to me. Actually, it's very good for them to take out the bad shield troopers from the deck and uh, draw the more powerful cards more frequently. And then on the hero side, there are also some cards that will KO cards from your deck, but they all give you, in the base set, rewards for doing so. And so they'll say, uh, you may KO a card from your hand or discard pile. Uh, if you do, you get plus one recruit. Or if you do, rescue bystander. Or if you do, uh, if you KO wound this way, draw a card. And so they're telling you, you'll get a benefit for KOing the cards. And so players that don't get why KOing is inherently good tell themselves, oh, I'm getting benefit. I guess I'm supposed to do that. I guess I want the benefit. Sure, I'll KO a card from my discard pile to get an extra recruit and if i'm going to ko somebody i might as well ko my worst guy and that's a shield trooper so off he goes and then over time hopefully they eventually learn that they'll draw their wolverine and iron man and captain america cards more frequently if they're ko and the crappy shield troopers out of their deck uh right but it kind of leads them on a path to not reject that before they've ever tried it yeah so the 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 two kind of uh, principles here is you know one a principle we've talked about before where you know you want to have this sort of path of discovery where over time you can kind of learn like oh wait this is really good for me and i can gain benefits from this but also the uh, principle we haven't talked about as much which is um in general you want to make in your game what people's intuitions are about the right thing to do the actually right thing to do right um you know that if they're not if they are if they're seeing a card or seeing an effect and saying uh you know this seems terrible i don't want to engage with it then it doesn't matter if it's actually really great. You need you want to be shifting the gear so that people can use it. Be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I'm willing to make the sacrifice, or I'm willing to move this ball this ball forward. Um, and if your if your player instincts are leading in different directions, then uh, you know you need to be making some changes. Yeah, th- th- that's a good point. And from a video game perspective, uh, one sort of obvious example is if there's a quarter, you want the player to go down, and the playtesters are not going down the quarter because it's too scary, or they want to complete this area first, or they think there's going to be a trap or something. Then you can do visual changes to make the corridor more appealing because there's more lights there or you put a treasure at the end of it or there's something there that signals you should go here and do this and then like oh okay i'll do that and then once they do it they're happy they did it and so giving you a reward for KOing your own guys is kind of like that where it's a signal that this is a good thing to do this is not a punishment this is a reward for you to take this overall action that gives you recruit and KOs your guys and then along the way they're doing the thing that they'll eventually learn is super awesome and super fun yeah and and i think um so we're we're I know we're running a little bit over time here, so I, I do want to kind of advance to sort of the modern era of deck building games, and, and I'll use it with one, a small jump that's related to our previous conversation, which is like, you know, we're sort of trying to find interesting ways to get people to to banish or KO or whatever trash, get cards yeah. out of their deck. Um, another game that I think did a, an interesting job of this was um, Tyrants of the Underdark, uh, which had uh, has a, it's a promoting is the way they theme it. Mm-hmm. And then you take a guy and you promote it to the inner circle, and cards that are promoted are worth more points than then ones that worst are still in your deck and so you can promote your starting cards which are worth a few points to get rid of them or there's actually gives you a reason to promote and get rid of your even your good cards because they're worth a ton of points uh so i thought that was both an interesting way to like theme the um 
the KOing effect uh, as something that's a positive, right. as well as like create more interesting decision space. Yeah. Um, because like I might have, I might, you know, in, in, in our games, there's, you're never going to get rid of your best card. That's just crazy right. talk uh, here now. Like, oh, maybe I would. Maybe it's a point in the game where I'd rather have the points than have the card. And so I found that to be a really interesting evolution uh, to try to solve the same problem we were trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so other things that are in that space, either tr- triggering off that or other things about the modern deck building era that, that how do you think about it these days? Yeah. And like, uh, there's, there's a Nick Fury battlefield promotion in the legendary, uh, first set that, uh, KOs shield officers and shield troopers, but gives you, or sorry, KOs the shield agents, but gives you shield officers. So it upgrades them into a better version. So it sort of makes it okay to KO them because giving you a better version in return. Um, and, uh, Dominion has some of that too, where they have these, estates worth one victory point that are in your initial deck uh and you're supposed to quote if you know what you're doing trash those out of your deck as soon as possible because they give no gold at all they do nothing but give you victory points at the end and uh you're you're gonna be far ahead if you ko the estates and draw your gold generating cards more quickly but a lot of people don't like the idea of taking victory point cards out of their deck it's counterintuitive to say the point of this game is get victory point cards in your deck so the first thing you should do is take them out it's like that's crazy like it doesn't make any sense to a lot of people until yeah. you get pretty far in dominion and so that's definitely something that i would want to avoid um and so if i can hit a couple more points on the way legend reacts to the previous crop of games uh sure so on the setup side legendary has an initial setup that uh presents a a series of combos that you can sort of enjoy on their own merits and get excited about how they combine uh in that you select five heroes to use out of the 15-ish that are in the box, like Dominion, but then there's also and the the heroes are known going into the game what what hero stacks will have. And every hero stack is five of common A, five of common B, three of the uncommon, one of the rare, and you mix them all together. And there's also a uh city of that gets villains feeding into it from a villain deck uh on a sort of conveyor belt where they're popping off one at a time and they're giving you new information as you go. And so every turn is a new uh decision to make and a new challenge of how will i uh deal with these cards on the good side and the bad side that have appeared since my last turn happened but you get i i was hoping sort of the uh the benefits of the initial setup of oh okay uh this board has hulk who's going to give me wounds it's got wolverine who can heal wounds it's got rogue who can copy things it's got iceman who's really good to play more blue cards so that's great to copy and you sort of your mind can get excited about some of those combos you see but you also have the sort of per turn uh, reveals that ascension has uh it's cooperative but it doesn't sort of need an alpha player like pandemic sort of requires like the sort of famous knock and cooperative games is, is uh what if one player sort of takes over and tells her what to do and that's not fun and many cooperative games can have that problem but pandemic like forces that problem by saying you can't really form a coherent plan of what to do in pandemic by yourself the actions you take only can have value in the context of other people working with you and going to the same place and getting the right cards and so you kind of can't play individually but in legendary you can sort of all have your individual uh all have a collective goal but work towards in your own way and you've hidden information in your hand and it doesn't really help anyone else to tell you what to do you all kind of have to form your own uh strategy legendary is a big emphasis on story both sort of your personal stories and the stories from the movies and the comics where uh you can retell the story of um all the avengers movies and all the spin-off movies uh you can tell your own stories of I had to fight this master mind and this scheme. I had these guys and it's very evocative. Uh, Sentinels of multiverse is a superhero cooperative game that was very inspirational. And it has uh, 
big bad enemies in that game that have sort of plot lines to do with they're trying to crash the moon into Earth or something. But every mastermind is the same plot in that game every time you play. And in Legendary, you can sort of mix and match. And that gives like a huge amount of replayability versus having the same scheme, the same mastermind every time. Um, in Ascension, I thought it was not awesome that if you let the nasty enemy live, the game never punishes you, uh, in the early sets at least. The bad guy kind of sits there and he's really tough, but he just like takes all the time in the world to hang out before you can muster enough attack to beat him. And making legendary, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the enemies punish you if you took too long before you fought them and they didn't just sit around. And so the enemies kind of get pushed through the city. And if you don't beat them fast enough, they will escape the city and uh, punish you as they leave. And it gives us higher sense of stakes and tension of, oh no, this bad guy with the nasty escape effect is getting closer to the end of the city. What are we going to do collectively to kill this guy before he can get away? Uh, you know, can anyone save us? And your friend finally kills you. Like, oh, thank God you killed him. And you feel a sense of reciprocity and gratitude. Uh, the board sort of has more of a sense of place for that reason. Once upon a time, I, I briefly had some things that could, uh, were generic guys that could help you fight that were uh, vaguely similar to the shield, sort of the uh, heavy infantry in Ascension. But one of the things I didn't love about Ascension is that some people think a great strategy is like buy tons of heavy infantry, just like kill the monsters really fast and run out the game really quickly before your opponent's fantasy combos can get going. And in the Marvel IP in particular, like having with the shield assault squads, like fight the super villains is like not what the IP is about. Like that is a very bad fit to superhero stories. And essentially it's a little better fit to have the heavy infantry kill the monsters, but for Marvel it's it's very bad fit. And so we didn't have heavy infantry and instead just relied on having enough attack points in the heroes to sort of get you what you need. Um, we didn't have any cultist equivalents in legendary because uh, it's not a great fit to superhero stories like fight the exact same dude a million times. It's a better fit to the sort of dark fantasy world of Ascension. Instead, we have these sort of henchmen that recur frequently and are low power and give you benefits for killing them, but it's not endless. It's just frequent. Right. And and so do you now, you know, you've done 20 to however many sets with the ones that you've been working on that aren't released yet. Uh, and... Do you, how do you think about the deck building genre today compared to, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, when we were first getting started in this process? Yeah, I'd be curious to get your take on it, but it's, it's interesting that there was a Dominion and then there was a pretty big crop of follow-up games, some of which were awesome, some of which less so. Uh, and then Legendary sort of came after that initial crop of um, Ascension and Pen Arcade and Nightfall and some others. And then there has been not as many since then. Like, um, the workhorses have kept pumping out new sets. The Dominion has a lot of sets also, honestly. And Ascension has an awesome number of them, and, and Legendary is a bunch too. But um, there haven't been as many new ones coming out that have sort of tried to take brand new ideas and bring them in. Like, um, Shards of Infinity um, from your company is, is out and uh, has cool new ideas, but there's not that many games. There isn't as much of a sort of gold rush as there used to be. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I don't know what your thoughts are. Huh, yeah, I still feel like there's quite a few um, deck building games out there. And I think that the thing, the space that's interesting to me, I mean, obviously we released Shards of Infinity because I had some ideas I really wanted to see and create a different sort of style of game. And that, you know, we built the mastery track as a sort of main innovation in that one where you actually are like sort of leveling up your player as well as like getting better cards yep. and that sort of influences across the board because that feeling of progress is one of the core fun of the deck building game and that 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 was really interesting but then there's you know for what i really like to see is the deck building genre getting sort of merged into other worlds right. and with other components so like um 
uh, Slay the Spire, uh, and 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 now uh, some some games are following up where you take the sort of deck building and combine it with a roguelike where you're going on adventures and it sort of forces you into these interesting paths and stories. I think is a really interesting space. Um, you've seen now a lot of deck building games that are trying to integrate with boards and tactical you know positioning um so uh, you know i mentioned tyrants of the underdark as well as uh, clank and other ones that are sort of taking these genres and, and introducing spatial relations and it's actually something i recently introduced into ascension with uh, um, skulls and sails was the set right. just released uh that has uh you know you have the kraken yeah, exactly. And I get to tell awesome, ridiculous stories and try to make the monsters more scary, addressing one of the points that's totally valid that, the, you know, the monsters are just kind of punching bags uh, in initial ascension. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, and then, you know, how does spatial relations and, and literally in in uh, the Skulls and Sails case, spatial relations I just built into the cards. Like, so right. the, the center row is the spaces right. as opposed to the other games that I mentioned where the there's a separate board that you're using spaces on. And so that was all interesting challenges and trying to, you know, sort of re... The, the fundamentals of deck building I view as now just sort of a one of the building blocks of games. Right, a tool. Um, just like the, you know, match three, you know, kind of has been used a million ways right. in Candy Crush and Bejeweled and whatever. Um, and the question is, how does that tool get not just sort of improved and refined, but how do you, you know, fit that tool and fit that piece in with other genres to create cool, exciting new things. Right. Yeah. You, you make a good point about, um, so Slay This Fire is a, is a total masterpiece. I have hundreds of hours in that one and it's God, it's so good. Uh, and combining roguelike with deck building is a great fit. Um, mentioned Tyrant Thunder Dark and Clank. And those are ones that I, I didn't have in my head when I said there haven't been as many innovations recently, right? As many new ones, because those ones are innovative and they are recent. So, um, in terms of vividity, of course, as well. And so I guess, I guess I, I just didn't have the examples kind of at my fingertips. Like I maybe should have. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, you know, it's always, it's fun as you said, and, and, you know, we'll kind of wrap, wrap up shortly here, but like the, the, we're all, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, the industry all sort of has the benefit of learning from the, what worked and what didn't work uh, in the past. In the same way, when we sit around with our friends and have play games and have those exact conversations, those are the things that then become the seeds of the next generation of stuff. Right. And part of why, you know, I like having these conversations and, and, and sharing them with people is because then we will be able to help inspire that next generation when they can say, Oh man, ascension and legendary they're they're all these failures let me fix that uh-huh, and totally. uh, you know i look forward to playing those games. me too i mean i want to uh, see people make better versions of legendary and better versions of uh tcgs and keep moving the uh standard forward right it's really the key thing is like our the heart of all of this stuff is we grew up loving playing these games and sometimes there was a game i needed to see that didn't exist so i had to make it <laughs> but if somebody else can make it that's way less work for me right, so right, please right. do right. <laughs> please make awesome games i can play right um, <laughs> so uh i uh you know sort of to wrap up if there are people out now that are uh that are fans of yours they want to see more of your stuff hear about what you're up to are there places that they can go things they should check out what, how, do, how do people follow uh follow you yeah I, i'm not really on 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 the twitter uh if you look at my if you google devon low and board game geek or bgg then they'll take it that page and list a bunch of my projects and has links to them that's probably the best place for people to see what i've been up to and any new stuff will be there um plants for zombies heroes is the latest thing i've released on phones and if you like Deckland games or tcgs it's a good chance you will like that uh legend is obviously out there the um yeah i think i think that's that's the the best place to catch up 
great. Yeah, no, there's plenty. Of, you've you already given people hundreds or thousands of hours of entertainment in just those those few statements. So uh, I, I I think will uh, people will be very excited to play that, and I am very excited to have had this conversation with you. It's been super fun, and uh, you know, there's actually a ton of topics that we didn't even get to touch on here. So I'm hoping we'll be able to do this again soon. Cool. That sounds great. And um, come to think of it, uh, there's a link from that working geek page to. 50 game design essays I wrote for magic.wizards.com back in the day uh, when I was working at Wizards. And so they may be a little out of date now because it's been been many years since then. Um, but uh, the kinds of beliefs I have about game design are, are often still still true from, from those days. Great. So plenty more material for people to dig into. And uh, they can we'll do some research before the next time we get to chat and they get to hear us. <laughs> so thanks very much, Devin, for taking the time. This was awesome. Cool. And I just want to say also that um, one of the things I found inspirational about uh, your career is not just that you like made an awesome game, but that you like took the leap to make your own company, right? Like um, a lot of people don't necessarily have the guts to uh, bet on themselves so much and to sort of like um, uh, believe that this will work out and have the confidence to like make it their whole uh, career, like their own company and like trying to invest in all the inventory and making all that work out logistically and hiring a bunch of people. And it's just like an awesome achievement that has helped to bring a lot of cool games to people. So I'm, I'm uh, impressed by that. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, it's, uh, you know, these sorts of things are, uh, are always scary when you take a leap to try to make your dreams come true and they don't always work out. But, uh, I sort of came to the conclusion that the cost of failure was lower than the cost of not trying. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, I look for you know and yeah you've you've accomplished a lot and jumped to a lot of different spots here too so it's it's a real honor and I appreciate those kind words and we will talk again soon. Awesome, thanks for having me. Thanks for making the podcast. It's been fun to listen to it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.